we're going to start by welcoming back our boy, Jason. Welcome back to the show, my brother. How you doing? Oh, uh, pretty <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, I heard you. I listened to your podcast last week. I thought you, uh, e- e- even, though, even though you made me realize my sin of selfishness, um, Dude, let me tell you something. <laughs> I was listening to my 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 little rant last week. This is why this is why there are two hosts on this show. Because when I do it by myself, I don't make. If it sounds like I'm an idiot, that's because I am one. Okay, I I have this problem where I want to say all these things and all these ideas all exist in my head as one thing, and I don't know how to structure. Uh, okay, first we get to A. And then now that we're at A, I'm going to take you down to B. And now that we're at B, I'm going to take you down to C. It all is in my head as one big jumble of letters. And that's how I want to throw it out to people. And it doesn't make any sense. So uh, now that Jason's back, we will start making sense again. Well, and- well, well, what I was going to add to that is, or the only thing I got from what you just said is that you said you feel like you sound like an idiot. So you decided to find a bigger idiot so that you would sound better. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's like it's like when the hot girl has has like an ugly friend, you know, because that she's hotter by comparison. <laughs> I'm it's the ugly one friend. of those things. No, yeah. no, you're actually. Unfortunately, <laughs> I thought I thought that that's what I was doing, and unfortunately, I now realize that uh, I have ugly friended myself. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. I got some work to do, but no, I, I. I I am. I was not pleased with the way I. Here's the problem. And Jason and I were actually talking about this earlier. Is that uh, we're we're both Irish by ethnicity, and we and our people have this tendency to get really emotional about particular subjects. And once that happens, all articulation goes out the window, and we just want to throw punches. And uh, you can't do that on a podcast. So sometimes the podcast will sound like, and then this this guy he he just so. Ah, you know so uh if it, if it sounded like that i apologize and i'll get better at structuring my arguments and talking like a person no but uh in all seriousness i listened to it i thought it was uh i actually thought it was really good well done um yeah i mean maybe in some parts i i, I didn't think as much as you did that, that you may have been you know uh, firm or bleeding from the mouth i thought you did did well and not necessarily falling victim to that but uh no i thought you did well and i actually thought you gave a good setup good segue into what we want to talk about this next episode and possibly the upcoming episodes so before we begin as always we want to invoke the divine blessing uh, on our on our efforts and hope that we can have an edifying discussion here about a very important topic and um, i think it should be a lot of fun i'm really looking forward to it uh in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Veni Sancti Spiritus, reple tuora corda fidelium, et tui amoris in eis ignim acende. Imite Spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Et renovabis facem tare. Oremus. Deus qui corda fidelium, Sancti Spiritus, illustrazione docuisti. Da nobis in iorum Spiritu recta sapere et de eos semper consolazione gadere, per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Hey, not bad for two guys who pray in a language they can't understand and don't know anything about, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, we'll probably get better the more we do it. Um, you know, but 
before we do uh, get into uh, our topic today, which is going to be uh, Vatican II, particularly uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, mm-hmm. um, I do want to, I, I think it would be appropriate to give praise to God and thanks to God for the the protection that the state of Texas has given to the unborn. Here, 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 here. I, I got to tell you, that. Uh, let's give a round of applause to the state of Texas. Now, I want to point something out here because this is the this abortion debate. I gets gets kind of lost in the weeds here. The Catholic Church does not have political opinions. That's a very important distinction here. Abortion is not a political opinion. We're not anti-abortion because we're conservative, or we're Republicans, or we're. It, this is not a political position for us. This is a position on the sanctity of the human life and and the dignity that every human person has by virtue of Christ's incarnation. Christ assumed a human nature. That means that that nature is shared with God himself. The angels don't even have that. They don't share a nature with the divine. We do. And that means that you cannot do things like I mean, there there may be circumstances where it might be morally licit to, to take a human life. They are extreme situations. And even in the cases where it is morally licit to do so, it's a terrible thing. You should never relish in killing somebody, say, in self-defense or anything like that. But in cases especially where it's morally illicit against someone who is innocent and defenseless, it's a grave, grave crime, and it's a sin that calls out to God for justice. Um, and so we really don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or, uh, or what political party you subscribe to. If you're pro-abortion, we're anti-you. Well, I don't want to say we're anti-you. We hope you convert and we hope you come back to the truth. But uh, this is not about politics. Make no mistake. The Catholic Church does not have political opinions. You know, and historically... Um, I, I mean, I guess you could make cases in, in, in some other realms currently today, but historically, you know, you hear the term, you can't be Democrat and Catholic, right? Right. And it, it, it wasn't because of the other social justice issues that the Democrats pushed or their agenda or their fiscal policy. That was strictly because of the killing of the unborn, because of abortion, um, so no, it is not a political stance because the Catholic Church, uh, for the most part, is open to those debates from our our friends and stuff from the other side of the aisle from us, whether you're liberal or conservative. But but the abortion is the is the one topic where there isn't or shouldn't be any leeway. Well, and you know we've been at you know people have asked before. Well, why can't can't we just dialogue about abortion? Can't we meet halfway? Well, okay. What, what are you willing to give up? Can we agree? If we cannot agree that, that survivors of abortion, say an abortion is botched and the child is born alive, can we agree then that the physician cannot kill him or her? No, we can't agree on that. Well, if we can't agree on that, then there really isn't any dialogue to be had here. Well, when um, it comes to the dignity of life, what what is a halfway point 
You know, I mean, exactly. What is that standard, and what is that halfway point when it comes to the dignity of a, of a human life? Um, and that's why it's such a black and white topic, and it right. needs to be such a black and white topic is because there's no middle ground in, in in this in this debate. And and I I also want to say that we're not indifferent to the suffering of women who are put sometimes in terrible positions. We're not saying that we don't care about uh, women. We don't care about their rights or their choices in life. However, uh, with choices come responsibilities. And even in the cases of things like, uh, like rape or incest, which are horrible, horrible crimes, and the, and the people who commit those crimes are guilty of grave sins, um, it does not justify the taking of an innocent human life and even in those circumstances because even in the circumstances of like let's say let's say somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you and the catechism of the catholic church says you may be forced to deal your opponent a lethal blow it's still a terrible thing to have to do it's not like if i had to do that I should go out on Facebook and, oh, man, this guy broke into my house and I blew his ass away. Man, that was awesome. You know, no, no. Even in a case like that, it's a terrible thing to have to do. But so, so in a situation where you don't have to do it, it's incredibly grave. It's, it's an incredibly horrible crime um, to commit against your fellow human beings. And to, to, to say that you're doing it in the name of, of health care or or, or the one I've always thought was particularly perverse was choice because I was like, well, everybody's got choices whether or not to kill people. I make a choice right. not to kill people every day. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, <clears throat> what kind of a choice are we talking about here? Uh, that's a, that was an incredibly macabre argument. Now they, they've switched away from that now. Now they're, now they're going with the healthcare argument, which is equally as absurd, but well, and, and my favorite, and we were talking about it, um, a little bit before the show earlier today. Uh, my favorite comeback for the... Well, I mean, what they're doing is they're basically justifying abortion by saying, well, you're not pro-life because you, you, you don't want to allow abortions, but you don't want to support them after birth. Now, now my, my response is typically, one, that's not true, but two, can we improve on the care and support after birth? Absolutely. I don't think anybody in the pro-life movement will deny that. And granted, we can defer on how we think that needs to be done, either by, you know, government assistance or, you know, my viewpoint is we as a society need to step up and help these women and children, right? Well, and, yeah, being pro-life means being pro-life all around, right? I mean, right, you, right. You but stop being pro-life at birth. That's for sure. But it's not a uh, one or nothing proposition because because they're making the argument. Well, you ain't doing all this stuff afterwards, so why should I? You know, wh why should we stop abortion? Well, for one, if we're going to improve these other these other aspects of the pro-life movement, the biggest and most important one, at least here in Texas, uh, abortion has been. Uh, stopped or at least severely um, crippled, right? So if you've killed a human being before it's born, none of the other stuff matters. Okay, let's stop abortion, and then now let's work on all this. I'll, 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 
I'll help you the best I can after that, right? I mean, I think I think almost anybody in the pro-life movement would say that. But none of that matters if you're saying, oh, it's okay to kill in the womb. Yeah, no, I, you can't. You cannot put yourself in a moral position where you, you say, because I can't guarantee this person will have a particular quality of life or will have particular advantages as opposed to other people, that justifies ending their existence. I, man, come on. Because I can't guarantee the well-being of really anybody outside my home and the population of anybody outside my home. So we should just nuke the entire world because I can't guarantee that we're going to feed and clothe them for the, you know, some yeah, of I, mean, stuff, I mean, what should we guised uh, in the language of, I care more than anybody else, but in reality, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's another language game and it's not a, sincere, it is, it is a sincere argument. And when it comes to, uh, our bishops and priests playing this game, um, I think it comes along the lines, and Trent Horn uh, had mentioned it one time in one of his shows. Shout out to Trent Horn. Yes, yes, love Trent Horn. <laughs> they, uh, well, or he mentioned that, like, uh, in the case of uh, James Martin, Father James Martin, that he promotes ideas, but he does it in such a calculated way that he is promoting a teaching or a mindset that is contrary to the church teaching without actually saying it. So when he's confronted about it, he can say, I never said that. But everybody knows what his true just, intentions Which is were. just cowardice. I mean, Very I got to tell you something. I, I, say what you want about Martin Luther, and you could say plenty. That guy stood up to the most powerful institution of his day at a time when doing so meant you could be burned alive. And he said, no, this isn't a misunderstanding. We fundamentally believe different things. And the way I see it is the way I see it. And I'm, you know, at least he owned it, man. You got to give him that at least. He right. owned it. <laughs> he, owned, he, he owned his error, but he owned it. Now, I'll disagree with his theology all day long, and I will soundly, uh, and uh, I will, I will, you know, feel comfortable saying that he was in error. But at least he didn't pull this chicken, you know what crap of. Well, I'm going to say it, but I'm not really going to say it, say it, so that people won't know that I'm saying it, and and I'm so clever because I have all these degrees that I can trick people into doing. You know, give me a break. Nobody, everybody sees through you. Everybody yes. sees through you. You just look like a coward. It's a way. Quiet, it's a way to try to appease the world while living in it, but also not drawing the ire and the the condemnation from the from the people that, uh, for all intents and purposes, support you day in and day out. Exactly. You, yeah. You don't want to get kicked out of the apparatus that gives you a, a platform. Right. Um, anyway, I know we got off a little little bit off. No, but there, I think but it's, that was a good. I think it it's worth good, it. Yeah. Um, before we begin, we're going to, before we begin talking about Vatican II, Jason is going to share with us a little anecdote and we're going to take you back. We're going to take you all the way back to the 1960s. Oh, it was a glorious time. People were groovy. The music was sometimes pretty cool and the decor was God awful. Jason, take it away. <laughs> well, <I don't, laughs> man. Listen, I'm trying out some new angles, okay? <laughs> okay, well, I don't know if it, it doesn't go back to 1960 necessarily, but... Uh, when, does it go, when does it go back to? 
Well, it's actually current day. No, the the story about uh, Boogie. When when does that story go back? Oh no, you're talking about something different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I got you. I got you. I'm, oh, let's go okay. back all the way back to 2021. <laughs> where <laughs> I'm sorry, man. <laughs> oh well, first I was like, "What are you doing to me, man?" <laughs> I'm sorry, brother. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. And, and this is just an example of what we're going to talk about that I actually read probably 30 minutes before we, we got on here. So it's from, uh, it's on Twitter. And by the way, let me make a comment here. Uh, Mark is not active on our Twitter account. Maybe one day he will be. But if anybody happens to see our Twitter account and they don't like some of the things that are said or whatnot, I just want them to know that it is not Mark that is saying it. It is. No, it is. It no, is I me. stand behind it. I stand behind your Twitter account. The Twitter account says "trad men," and I'm one of the trad men. So well, yeah, I'm be, with care, you, bro. be careful what you say. One day you may regret that. I don't. Uh, hey, listen, man. If I, if it, if it becomes that bad, I'll uh, I'll come out and I'll say, hey, uh, we're no longer the trad men. Uh, I am the trad man, and he is Jason. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so. On this wonderful platform called Twitter, where everybody gets along and it's open and free speech. Mm, um, <laughs> okay, did you hear the story about the Anglican bishop that converted and uh, entered into full communion with the Catholic Church? Have you heard about that? I have heard of that phenomenon, but I don't know if I've heard the exact okay. so story that, you're talking about. I believe it, it was an Anglican bishop, maybe even an archbishop, I'm not sure. But it was a bishop of the Church of England. I think his name is Jonathan Goodall, it says here. Mm -hmm. So he converted, okay? So he came into full communion with the Catholic Church. Praise God. Praise God. Somebody uh, was talking about this on Twitter. His name is Raymond Friel, F-R-I-E-L. And in his book, Raymond. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and it says in his profile here, on his Twitter profile, he is Catholic Social Teaching Leadership Spirituality. Okay? And he lives in England. So, in response to this bishop converting um, to the Catholic Church, he says, this kind of nonsense really needs to be challenged. There is salvation outside of the church. Vatican II made that clear enough. Okay? So then somebody, somebody responds with, you may want to reread uh, Lumen Gentium, Chief. And he quotes here in 14, which says, The Sacred Council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faith. Basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, it teaches that the church, now sojourning on earth as an exile, is necessary for salvation. Christ, present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church. For through baptism, as through a door, men enter the church. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or to remain in it, could not be saved. So, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about. What does Vatican II actually say? And what do people either think it says or just flat out um, deny it? And 
And I've mentioned to you, Mark, the, the more I've read these, uh, or read it, that's terrible, read these uh, documents, the more it becomes obvious that with Pope Francis's motu proprio, it's not us, tr traditional Catholics, that are denying or ignoring Vatican II. It's it, it, it's guys like this, those ones that, that he is taking advice from. And, and you know, I, I, I'll admit, I had a lot of pre- uh, or I had a lot of misconceived notions about what Vatican II said and taught, and um, it's opened my eyes since I've actually started reading the documents, and I haven't even even gone through them. I can see plenty of violations of Sacrosanctum Concilium itself. So I, I think this is a good example of, you know, somebody saying, "Oh, Vatican II doesn't teach that no more." Well, no, that's not true because the Vatican II went against it and, and taught something different than the church that the church has taught for two thousand years. Well, then th there wouldn't be a continuity of of the faith. Oh yeah, well, see, it's okay. So I was, I remember in the eighties and nineties. Okay, uh, you know, so you know, coming of age kind of in the eighties, and then really being like a teenager in the nineties. The internet started to become a thing in the nineties. But the internet was not really a place you went to to get tons of information back in those days. Like it, you could, I think you could do some shopping if you were in some situations. But primarily, email was becoming brand new. Uh, we used to get those discs in the mail, America Online. You got like a thousand free hours. You'd get all psyched up, and then your computer would make that weird noise when it logged on. The internet sucked back in the day. It was not that great. But uh, <laughs> nowadays. So okay, so going back to those days, in in so Vatican II concluded in 1965. If you wanted to know what Vatican II said, you'd have to wait another 15 years for those documents to be published in a volume uh, that you could that you could get to and and consult. There was no internet in 1965. You could instantly click on the Vatican's website and read Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, it was not that much better in, in the 90s, even with the advent of the Internet. However, uh, in the 2000, 2010s, and now we're into the 2020s, the Internet now is a pretty robust situation. It's probably the most revolutionary human invention since the advent of farming, okay? And people have now read Vatican II, and I think that's what this is all really about, because... It was Vatican II was the perfect vehicle if you wanted to impose your novel vision of Catholicism on the world because nobody knew what it said, and it was whatever you said it was, particularly if you were a bishop. It, it said whatever you said it said. And if you're one of the people, well, what are you going to do? Prove him wrong? He's a bishop, or he's a cardinal. He, he, he would know, and... I probably wouldn't. So if he says we're turning the altar around because Vatican II says so, I guess that's what it means. And now they're not having that much luck with that anymore. People are now reading Vatican II and finding out that uh, not what it says at all. And uh, that's why I kind of wanted to get into it. And I think... Yeah, and it doesn't mention all these things you talked about. Ad populum, it doesn't mention communion in hand. It doesn't mention um, doing the entire Mass in the vernacular. In fact, in many cases, it expressly forbids a lot of yep. these things. Um, and we'll get into exactly... I, I don't know if I want to spend too much time on how it all went wrong, because I'm not... <laughs> but, I, but I do want to 
talk about what was going on. And so with that being said, let's go back. Let's go all the way back to the 1960s, 1962 to be precise. Well, actually, let's go back even further to 1960. Pope John the 23rd, who, by the way, if Pope John the 23rd were Pope in the internet age, he would have been like the most popular Pope ever. He was this joyous, uh, he was a just a big personality from, from everybody that's, I mean, I didn't know the guy personally, obviously, but... <laughs> Everybody says he just had this big personality. He was hugely optimistic about how the world works and the way that it's going. He saw progress as the inevitable, you know, just destiny of mankind. Now, keep in mind, this is a pope who has lived through uh, two European wars that collectively, I think, totaled, what, 120 million corpses, okay? (laughs) And some of the worst human atrocities on other human beings we literally didn't know people were capable of that level of barbarism, okay? He comes out the other end of that. It's 20 years after World War II, in which we've seen things like the invention of the atomic bomb, the Holocaust, uh, the, the, the horrible things that communism has unleashed upon the world, all the famines and the mass incarceration, the death and everything. And he just thinks the world is a great, something wonderful is about to happen. And in 1960, to the surprise of everybody, he's in a bishop's meeting. He's giving him an address on a bunch of mundane sort of housekeeping items that go on in the Vatican. And at the end of that, he says, and by the way, we're going to, uh, we are going to convene an ecumenical council. And the room basically just kind of falls flat because there's a couple of problems with that. A, we never really concluded the last ecumenical council, the first Vatican council. That's still open. <laughs> that, is, that actually is still open. And interestingly enough, and I want to get back to this at some point later, a big part of our current problem. But anyway, we, don't, we never concluded the first Vatican council. That's A. Secondly, um, we don't really know how to do an ecumenical council. I mean, the last one we did was 100 years ago, Vatican I. And before that, the last one was Trent. Uh what are we what is this about what are we going to do well that wasn't really very well articulated by pope john the 23rd he just had this idea that and by the way john the 23rd was not liberal he was a very conservative guy particularly liturgically um but he convenes this ecumenical council this is a thing that happened okay all these bishops from all over the world come to vatican city and they're going to talk about a bunch of things but but essentially the idea here is the world that we live in is technologically and it's, it's just substantially different than the world that was around at the time of Trent or that the church has ever lived in before. And we should define ourselves a little bit here. We should define what the Catholic church is, um, what we're not, what, what the bishops are, what their role in the world is. What is it that priests should be doing? Uh, lay people got a huge chunk of treatment in Vatican II, because as Vatican II rightly points out, the Catholic Church, so people at that time had this idea that the Catholic Church is basically the people who were in charge, the Pope, the bishops, and the priests. That's the church. That's not correct. The church is the whole people of God. That's what uh, Vatican II says. So you as lay people are not only part of the church, you're the biggest part of the church. You might not be high up in the hierarchy, but you are a part of 
the church and a very big part of it. Unfortunately, a lot of this stuff kind of gets left out because the most visible thing that happens in the wake of the Second Vatican Council is liturgical reform. This is, this is they, they want to reform the church's liturgies, okay? Now, what ends up happening is the mass totally changes into something, they just write a new mass. And so this becomes what most people think Vatican II was all about. A lot of, many, many people, my wife actually, we were talking today in the car on the way over here. She says, well, I know Vatican II was a big meeting of bishops who got together to write the new mass. And I said, no, not true. But it's not her fault for thinking that, is my point. Because that was the story that was spread about Vatican II before people could actually read this document. Well, and, and Mark, if I may interject for a minute. Um, Come on in. You know, uh, when I read these, the when I've been reading these documents, I'm just having a hard time finding all the hate the Vatican II itself gets. I'm not talking about the things that came afterwards. You know, does uh, are there abuses post-Vatican II? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, should we go back to the traditional Latin Mass? Absolutely, in my opinion. But, you know, um, it just becomes more and more apparent that after Vatican II, after these documents were written, that there were evil men or evil intentioned men that 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 wanted to change it for whatever reasons. Because when you actually go back and look pre-Vatican II, we we tend to live in nostalgia where everything was good. Everybody was orthodox, you know. But that's just not the case. You know, uh, Father Bunini didn't even come up with his idea of liturgical reform on his own. He spent time in France where they were doing uh, uh, many things that were not allowed by the uh, lit uh, liturgical rites mm -hmm. in Italy, you know, in other parts of Europe. So it's not like liturgical abuses are um, just uh, special, shall we say, for post-Vatican II. Oh, but, no, for, for uh, sure. Yeah. In fact, in fact, uh, uh, Paschendi Domini, uh, Dominici Gregis, which was an encyclical written by Pius X in 1907, was an encyclical against modernists. He didn't write an encyclical against modernists because there were no modernists in the church. Yeah. And this was 1907. So the, the idea that these people came out of nowhere is not true. They've well, always been there. Well, and, you know, does Vatican do, does Sacrosanctum Concilium and, and some of the other documents, do they have some vagueness uh, in, in some of the wording? Yes. I mean, I guess you could make that point. However, just because you say they're, they're uh, ambiguous or vague, let's not blame the documents. Let's read for what they say. We need to be blaming the men that decided to go around what this says and make the changes. Absolutely. Well, and that's 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 one of my my things that I was trying to communicate in the last episode was we've got to stop letting them control the dialogue about Vatican II. Most of us think Vatican II is a bad thing because it 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 is to us whatever they say it is. And we've largely let them write the story about Vatican II, and that story is a bad story. Um, but when you understand a few things about Vatican II in its context, uh Vatican II, I'm going to put it to you this way, and I, I think I said this on the last podcast. I think 
the fathers of Sacrosanctum Concilium would have been horrified by Traditionis Custodes. Oh, yes. In fact, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, am amongst all the documents in the Vatican that were hotly debated by various factions of bishops and cardinals and things like that, you had conservative wings and liberal wings and this, that, and the other thing, Sacrosanctum Concilium was the very first document that the, that the council agreed upon, and it was the most agreed upon document. I think there were only seven, five, seven or six bishops who voted against it, and one of the bishops who voted for it, and one of its most enthusiastic supporters, was a bishop by the name of Marcel Lefebvre. A lot of people don't know that. Now, do you think Marcel Lefebvre would have signed off on this thing if he thought that this was a blueprint for how to write a new mass? I think the, the, the obvious answer is no. And, no. And, and you said they would have been horrified by the motu proprio that Pope Francis. I, I don't think when they signed off on this, they had any intention or envision of the mass that we have today. And it, I don't remember the father's name, but that, but that talk that you linked in the last episode you did. Uh huh. You know, he, he mentions in there um, that. How'd he, how'd he put it? Um, he talked about how, I believe it was a congregation of rites who should have been in charge of any any liturgical changes, right? Because the church has a history of liturgical uh, development, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Organic. Absolutely. Or, or Organic, right? Because even after Pope Pius V wrote his encyclical, did I say it right? Encyclical. There we go. Which encyclical? The, uh... Are you uh, talking about Quo that was a motu proprio. Oh, motu proprio. Okay. Well, after well, after he wrote that, he, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had made some updates to some of the 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 rites and uh, of the liturgy. Um, and I know, and didn't Pope Pius X didn't he uh, make some changes to sacred music or, or something like that? If I'm not mistaken, I might be wrong on that. Yeah. But, well, a lot of a lot of people don't. Uh, Pius X made some actual changes to the breviary, which were not. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Universally popular. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But anyway, my point is is that the the council fathers envisioned. Uh, liturgical development and maybe liturgical changes that were organic, as this uh, document says in Sacrosanctum Concilium, that maybe had been lost, uh, you know, it, it, through the through time. But what we actually got through the Concilium uh, that Father Bunini led was, I mean, it's clear to see it was an unorganic liturgical change, and. And that is something that the that the that the fathers at the council I don't believe envisioned. And it, it, on that talk that father said that on that link, I wish I, I should look up his name, but I can't remember his name. But you know, he mentions that the congregation of rights was against it, against these changes, but they weren't even um, involved in it. The concilium made all the changes. So so there, like I had always read Sacrosanctum Concilium, believing that it was what those men you're talking about said it was. In other words, they wrote this as a blueprint for how to write a new mass. And so when I would read it, you know, and I would understand people would say, oh, but Vatican II doesn't say to do it. And Vatican II, and I was like, well, Vatican II doesn't really say what to do. I mean, there are, there are passages in here in which uh, it, it's difficult to determine exactly how in the world to do this wrong. One of the ones that I've always uh, gone to, and one of the ones that is, uh, commonly sort of quoted to people is the idea of, of, of Latin in the mass, okay? 
And yeah, it's true. It does say that. Um, it does say somewhere. Let's see. Let me find it. In in number thirty six of Sacrosanctum Concilium, the use of the Latin language with due respect to particular law is to be preserved in the Latin rites. But then the very next sentence says. But since the use of the vernacular, whether in the mass, the administration of the sacraments, or in other parts of the liturgy may frequently be of great advantage to the people, a wider use may be made of it, especially in readings, directives, and in some prayers and chants. Regulations governing this will be given separately in subsequent chapters. Now, you read those two things together and you're like, okay, so are we keeping the Latin or are we not? Because you just said both that we're getting rid of it and we're keeping it at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. So... And, and and that was always my problem. It's not that I didn't like Sacrosanctum Concilium or that I thought it was heretical or anything like that. I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. Um, and so what you have to look at, though, is look at exactly what the Council Fathers were doing when they wrote Sacrosanctum Concilium. Sacrosanctum Concilium is a document that basically has this general principle in mind, if you can boil it down to two general principles. The first is the liturgy is important not just for priests and bishops and scholars, right? Uh, that used to be a deal that you didn't really study or know anything about the Mass unless you were a priest or, a, or a, an academic type or something like that. It was, it was the realm of experts. And, what, and then this movement came along, and it starts kind of in the latter part of the 19th century and finds its, and finds its way up to Vatican II called the liturgical movement. And the liturgical movement's idea was, no, no, that's wrong. The liturgy is a big deal for every single Catholic. The, the little old lady who sits in the back of your parish and, and she's, she's praying on her rosary beads, she needs to be involved in, in the liturgy. And it's not just something that's going on up there away from her. She is integrally a part of it. This phrase will come up, active participation, which is another thing that has been grossly misidentified. Uh, well, shall I add that that term was even being used, you know, earlier I mentioned back in in the liturgical uh, movements in France, pre-Vatican uh, I, you know, mm -hmm. that active participation was floating around even, even oh, around yeah. then, I think, in the 20s and stuff. So it's not like it was a made-up term come Vatican II. It was something that many, apparently, priests in parts of Europe were pushing. So, so that's the first pillar of Vatican II, is that the liturgy is important and a big deal for every single individual Catholic. The second pillar of Sacrosanctum Concilium is the Catholic Church is a big church, and there's a lot of different people in the Catholic Church, particularly in the 1960s. For the first time, we have missions in places like Africa, we have missions in places like Asia. We have missions in Latin America. I mean, Latin America has basically been Catholicized by this point. But there are missions all over the world now in places that they had never really had them. There are bishops there representing these missionary churches. And so the idea here is, if it's, if it's, if it's beneficial, and the Sacred Congregation for Rights would be the people who would decide if this is beneficial, we would like to give some freedom for that congregation to experiment a little bit. Now, I know that sounds like a bad word, and it sound, experimentation sounds, but let's think about this, experiment, meaning if it doesn't work out, let's, let's not continue to do it if it's a bad idea, mm -hmm. right? That, for some reason, experimentation 
in the Catholic Church means even if it's stupid and even if it's even if nobody likes it, we're going to keep doing it because that's the way we've been told to do it. Well, that's not what experiment means. Experiment means okay. Uh, it, it might be beneficial over here in this church in Uganda to do some of the readings in their language so that they can kind of engage with a little bit more and, 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 and become more part of what's going on here. And then if in 15 years it, it came back that, well, ever since we started doing that, the Ugandans quit coming to church, <laughs> that the sacred congregation for rights could then go, okay, let's, let's, let's roll back on that. Let's, let's go back to the old way we were doing Let's go back to doing what worked. The idea here is, is that if there, if there are people out there who uh, engage with the liturgy more when it's done in its preconciliar form, great. That's fantastic. And let me tell you something. These people who go to the traditional Latin mass are passionate about the liturgy. They are one of the only groups of people who are passionate about the liturgy. I was in the vestibule at uh, Regina Chaley Parish, where Jason and I go to church. There were two high school-aged boys there having a conversation about the 1950 Holy Week reforms that were done <laughs> by Pope Pius XII. Do you understand what an obscure conversation that is for two high school-aged lay people to have? I remember, I remember having conversations at that age, and it definitely wasn't along those lines. Oh, yeah, I don't know what I was talking about when I was that age. But, I, was but my, I, I was probably eating dirt at 16, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I might still be doing that now, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but my point is that the liturgical movement, the authors of Sacrosanctum Concilium would have loved that. They would have done backflips over that. What they would not have liked is if a pope came along and said, yeah, even though these people are the only people actively participating in the liturgy, uh, I personally don't like them, so they're not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> Mark, Mark, and, and here's the thing about that, is when you, what, what you just read, which was Article 36 in uh, Sacro Sanctum Concilium, the thing is, is that it, it allows for, and you can also, as you continue reading the document, when it comes to sacraments and sacramentals, when it comes to uh, the divine office, it says you can do the vernacular in certain instances that have to be approved right. by, the, by the correct authorities. Okay, so let me ask you this. You have priests and people right now saying, oh, I don't, I don't like the traditional Latin Mass. I prefer the Mass in the vernacular. That is not what this is telling you. And how many of the parishes in, in the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, do you think have gotten permission to do the entire Mass in English? Or do you think that that is just, well, that this is where we've always done it? Well, that's so, so, so those things will come in a little bit later uh, when the, when the, the, the concilium starts deviating from Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, and they, they it, I mean, they come out almost immediately after the close of the council and they start deviations. Um, yep. But one of the things that I, you'll really get as you dig into this um, is that this was never intended, the idea that this was a break from the things that came in the past. So th that's pre-Vatican II. We don't do things that are pre-Vatican II. One of the things you'll find is that the the reform of the liturgy as it's envisioned by the council here is about rediscovering things in the past. It's about, it's a, it's about people of our generation, uh, the, the Gen Xers and those who came after us who didn't grow up with the Latin mass, 
coming across a Latin mass and rediscovering its ancient traditions and rediscovering the things that were beautiful about it. Um, and it actually says here in Sacrosanctum Concilium that uh, one of the, let's see here, I've got a, now I've got a, I had this thing, uh, of course, all marked up and it was ready to go. And then, you know, I, was I written on your hand. <laughs> but uh, it says, um, the liturgy is made up of unchangeable elements divinely instituted and of elements subject to change. The latter not only may be changed, but ought to be changed with the passage of time. If they have suffered from the intrusion of anything out of harmony with the inner nature of the liturgy or have become less suitable. In this restoration, now there's, a, now there's an interesting word that they use, restoration. Both texts and rites should be drawn up so as to express more clearly the holy things which they signify. The Christian people, as far as possible, should be able to understand them with ease and take part in them fully, actively, and as a community. Um, you find that kind of language all over the place, that this is about um, uh, restoring things that have fallen out of custom and rediscovering things from the past. And a big part of what they were trying to do, in some, in some cases, is restore some things that they thought the early Roman church was doing, but they were kind of in error about some things. For instance, uh, the perfect example comes to mind is the turning of the altar around in 1960s liturgical historical science, which is a relatively new discipline. It was commonly believed that the early Roman church worshiped that way, that the, that the altar was detached from the back and the priests faced the people. Um, Modern scholarship now understands that that was largely a myth, that that, that really never happened. Right. Now, that's to be expected because history sometimes is a moving target, and historians will tell you that as time goes on, we discover new things about history, and we go back and we, we fix our, our understanding of, of the past. But what, you, but what you find instead is, nope, it doesn't matter. Uh, I heard that Vatican II said it, so even if it's not right, and even if it's wrong, and even if it's burning the whole Catholic Church to the ground, we're going to continue to do this because we're married to this, and that's the way it is. And I'm telling you, that is not what Sacrosanctum could Get off your pride and make the, do. make the change. It says, to, it says things ought to be changed if, if they're less suitable than they should be. But but unfortunately now, the Missal of Paul VI is the unique expression of the Lex Orandi of the Roman Rite. Okay, now those two ideas are mutually exclusive of one another. We've got to do one or the other. Now, we can go with the Pope's version of history, or we can go with the Ecumenical Council, and there is no higher authority in the Catholic Church than an Ecumenical Council. Uh, so... so which so, yeah. so, so, Mark, j just a few things there from this, from this book that you recommended to me, which I thank you because I'm loving it. Which but is uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, mm. Benedict XVI's Collected Works, Theology of the Liturgy. Yes. In the very beginning, he, he writes on the essence of the liturgy, but the real liturgy implies that God responds and reveals how we can worship him. It cannot spring from imagination our own creativity then it would just remain or then it would remain just a cry in the dark or mere self affirmation so i think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about organic versus unorganic changes and what the concilium brought to us right right and and here's something else, you know, going back to the Twitter from that Richard Friel or whatever his name was that I read uh -huh. earlier, and you hear many people today, because I even went 
heard this when I was going through my conversion process uh, through the RCIA program. Basically, everybody's everybody's saved. Catholic Church just has the fullness of faith, and and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember even Pope Francis speaking about the evils of uh, evangel evangelism and, and trying to convert people, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't speak to that level of uh, authoritativeness about what Francis so, said on the so subject. But. Take that with a grain of salt. But but I, I know I have read and I have heard it from high-ranking officials at a minimum, at least. I, I want to say Pope I, Francis yeah, came out a couple of years. I have heard that and, from, from bishops and things like that. I have yeah. That. yeah. So I, I want to say a couple of years ago or so, my memory is not great on it, but, but he talked about... Uh, you know, basically trying to trying to convert people, and we shouldn't necessarily try to do it in every instance, I guess. But anyway, that's neither here nor there to what I'm necessarily about to say. But in Article Nine of uh, Sacro Sanctum Concilium, it says the sacred liturgy does not exhaust the entire activity of the church. Before men can come to the liturgy, they must be called to faith and to conversion. Mm. So. This idea of Vatican II says that everybody's okay, that we should open up communion to the, the remarried and the divorce. We should open it up to pro-abortion politicians. We should maybe let the Lutherans in. <laughs> that is a made-up farce that has developed over the past, what, 70 years or so that, this, that, that I haven't been able to find in, in, in any of the, the documents. Well, the popes, the the the, the, the post conciliar popes have roundly condemned that idea. So, if if and the idea that you know, and by the way, say what you want about John Paul II and uh, and Benedict the Sixteenth, but those guys were at Vatican too. Benedict the Sixteenth, you know, we're talking about this book, and I have a copy of the book myself. Um, it's Joseph Ratzinger, Collected Works, Theology of the Liturgy, from Ignatius Press. Um, I think, in my opinion. Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Benedict XVI, is probably the, the, the most influential pure theologian in the post-conciliar Catholic Church. And I know everybody likes, I know all the, the, the quote-unquote Vatican II people all like Karl Rahner. Nobody's reading Karl Rahner to interpret Vatican II. <laughs> Everybody's going back to this guy, Benedict XVI, who is, who is incorporating some very technical and abstract ideas in the language that lay people can understand. And I don't know how he does it because I can barely articulate my thoughts about Traditionis Custodes in a coherent manner. But listen to what he says about active participation here. Uh, to express one of its main ideas for the shaping of the liturgy, the Second Vatican Council gave us the phrase participatio actuoso, the active participation of everyone in the Opus Dei, not the organization Opus Dei, the Opus Dei meaning the people of God or the work of God. In what happens in the worship of God, it was quite right to do so. The Catechism of the Catholic Church points out that the word liturgy speaks to us of a common service and thus has a reference to the whole holy people of God. But what does this active participation come down to? What does it mean that we have to do? Unfortunately, he writes, the word was very quickly misunderstood to mean something external entailing a need for general activity as if many people as possible as often as possible should be visibly engaged in action however the word participation refers to a principal action in which everyone has a part now because this is this is one of the most common especially since traditionis custodes 
criticisms of people who go to the traditional Latin mass. They're not actively participating. They're not act that they need to be actively participating and they're not actively participating. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Here you have, uh, uh, let's say your typical quote unquote Novus Ordo parish, although I don't really like that term, but it's for lack of a better one. 30% of the people who attend that parish attend regularly. Most of them go twice a year. Those that do go, uh, 70% of them do not believe in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but they raise their hands during the Our Father, so that means they're actively participating as the Second Vatican Council envisioned it? I don't think so. Versus you, you have your traditional Latin Mass parish, where, and one of the things that's important to understand about the traditional Latin Mass movement is this is largely a movement started by lay people. Uh, the, the, the guy who made that excellent movie that we did a review on the mass of the ages is a lay person. Uh, the two guys on the vestibule having a conversation about the 1950 rubrics were lay people. They're not actively participating. We had uh, a high school student club up in spring, Texas, organize a traditional Latin mass so that people could experience one. Yeah. And then they held a question and answer thing afterwards. They made up a little pamphlet for everybody. They're not actively participating. We, I, I was just over at the parish. They, people spent their entire Saturday there doing work around the parish, painting doors, sanding different things for, uh, you know, different construction projects, mowing the, the grass of these huge grounds that we sit on. They're not actively participating. Now, Mark, Mark, you're just anecdotal. You're just one of the lucky few. I mean, we had a survey that went out oh, and survey. told us. And, and Pope Francis said he did talk to traditional people of good sense, but that didn't include the FSSP or Institute of Christ the King or Institute of the Good Shepherd. Or any, um, or any of the TLM <laughs> movements. Yeah. So, so I think your example here is it's kind of out of line. It's just an outlier. It must be because. But I tell you what, any of the traditional masses I've been because I, I travel for work, not not as much since COVID, but I but I do travel around the country and around the world. Every traditional parish I've ever been to is pretty uh, packed and seems pretty active. I mean, I don't. I put it to you this way. If what you're after is active participation, then uh, you're going to need some lay partners in that, your excellency and your eminence and your holiness. And the guys who go to mass twice a year and don't even believe in the Eucharist, I want you to prepare yourself for the fact that they may not care that much. Okay. And if you want some partners in this active participation thing you're in, well, you're going to have to start with people who go to the thing every week. Okay, let's start there. Let's start at the basic part of the people who attend every week. Because you can't actively participate in a liturgy when you only go twice a year. I'm sorry. I don't care what definition you have of active participation. If you don't go to Mass, that's not participation. Here's we'll something. Start, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead and finish. I'm sorry. Well, no, that, I, that's all. I'm just making that point. Well, I'm just going to make another smart aleck response. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do. We're the trad men. So... All this active participation of where some parishes, they add liturgical dance or some uh, alien zombie apocalypse um, where they look like they've uh, dropped some acid and are looking up at the <laughs> ceiling spinning like a bunch of doofuses and 
and those that are, you know, dressing up as clowns doing a magic show. Mm-hmm. All the spirit of Vatican II, right? Right? So right. so they should be okay with, uh, again, this line in Sacrosanctum Concilium. Therefore, no other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. Um, do you think they got the proper approval for those things in every well, instance? That, that, yeah, see, and that's the thing is, and then, and then the concilium turns around and gives them the authority. So <laughs> did they have the authority to give them the authority? I mean, that, you, you get into these, yeah. these, weird, these weird things. But again, I mean, I, I go back to my question of uh, if, uh, why is, for example... Okay, so remember the guy in Puerto Rico that we talked about who was sent to an insane asylum for saying yes, yes. the Latin Novus Ordo Mise and using Gregorian chants? Here's the thing. What, the, what his bishops said is they published a response saying, uh, according to Traditionis Custodes, we, we, we do not want to introduce any pre-Vatican II elements into the liturgy uh, so as not to break with uh, the liturgical reform as envisioned by Pope Francis. And here's the thing. That's not a crazy reading of Traditionis Custodes. That's exactly how I read it. <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's sad. That's the sad <laughs> fact about it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, it's not how, how funny it's how, how like in a shot, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, uh, going back to this idea of active participation, um, which is, seems to be one of their big deals. Active participation is important. It is important. And I don't want to toot a big horn here, but we're kind of the only ones doing it. And um, it, it seems it seems insane to me that that we would be the people you would punish, or that we would be the people you had a problem with. Now, I I understand that there's a lot of hostility in traditional Latin Mass attendees to Vatican II and to the idea of the reforms as they happened after Vatican II and things like that. But here's the deal. You guys have offered no legitimate or authoritative catechesis on Vatican II. The only people who talk about what the documents actually say are the people who are against it. So if you'd like people to believe some different things about Vatican II, why don't you teach us? Why don't you, and like, and don't just come out and say, well, Vatican II says to do it and you'll do it or else. Because as crazy as it sounds, that's not, that's not, uh, that's not convincing. Nobody responds that well to that type of uh, line of reasoning anyway. You'll do it because I said so. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you had your parents tell you that as a kid and you did it as a kid, but were you not upset when you were told because I told you so? Oh, yeah, no. It, it annoyed you, but you did it. But you were also a kid. Now that we're adults, it's, it's kind of like, no, 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 no. I, I am capable of, of reason and intelligent thought. Let's, let's dialogue and talk about why I need to besides just sit down and shut up. Right. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that I was confused about is attending the mass that they, that they used at the Second Vatican Council is somehow a denial of the Second Vatican Council. However, the 70, the, the 70% of the Catholic Church that doesn't believe in the Eucharist, a teaching that emphasized and reaffirmed um, in Vatican II, they're not denying Vatican II. And I'm and very confused about that. And that's one of those, it's like, if you don't believe that, 
Why, why are you even bother coming? Well, yeah, because not only did Vatican II not do away with that, Vatican II reaffirms the church's teaching that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So if you don't believe in that, how come you're not denying Vatican II? I mean, it well, seems yeah, like a very that, arbitrary distinction to me. And and let me add, you know, I, I, I said, you know, if you don't believe that, why, why are you coming? Maybe I should rephrase that. If you don't believe that, come, let's continue to hopefully open you up to that belief. But for... But but for Pete's sake, don't don't receive Holy Eucharist until you believe in the true presence of Christ. Why would you want to anyway? I, I like that doesn't make any sense to me. The idea that Lutherans can't wait to come to Catholic Mass and and receive the Eucharist. Where did you get that idea? Did I mean they certainly didn't tell you that? So I, and if it you're goes not back to if you're oh, not okay, and I'm just saying like. With that and with women priests and, and all that, well, uh, women priests is kind of an oxymoron, but this whole idea is, that, okay, you're obviously Lutheran for a reason. Why is it so dadgum important for you to, to, to come receive Holy Communion at, at Christ Church? And the only thing I can come up with is that it's about control and about changing the institution of the Catholic Church, which... which whether they're Catholic or not, most of them know inside themselves that this is the true body of Christ. For some, for some, I think that's the issue. But there, like, there's this also there was this idea that was popular in the '60s, and it's an idea so idiotic that you'd need a PhD just to believe it's true. Um, this and and this is another problem. You know, we were talking about you got to think like an academic, you got to think like a modernist. I have a theory, and all I do is I just introduce people into the theory because people are just like furniture. They're like blocks of wood. They don't, they're not individuals that have their own ideas about things. They, they are whatever I say they are, and then when the theory doesn't work out, it's not because there was anything wrong with my theory. It was those damn people, you know? But going back to that, um, this idea in the 60s came about that if we made the Catholic Mass look more like a Protestant version even though they never really define which sect of protestantism they're talking about if we make it look more protestant then we can somehow trick the protestants into becoming catholic yeah and, and yeah no that'll work yeah it, it, here's the problem it is not it sounds stupid to say out loud but this was a very legitimately thought of opinion by a liturgical quote unquote experts at the time and I know everybody thinks, well, Mark, you're just anti-Protestant. Actually not. I have a little bit more respect for Protestants than that. Don't take these people. They're not, they're not fools. They don't agree with us. You're not going to trick them into yeah, joining and that, a new religion. Give and them that, a little credit, please. And that's, my, and that's my question, and I still don't understand what I said a minute ago, is why are they... I'm not talking about the, the people within our church that are trying to make, the, make it acceptable. I'm talking about the Lutherans and the, the Anglicans and all of them that want to receive Holy Communion. Why are they so bent on us doing it? And, and, and I can't think of any other reasons besides it's a matter of I won, I'm in control, the, you know, those type mindsets. I mean, I just haven't, honestly, I haven't come across any. I mean, for example, uh, the Reverend Ian Paisley, who was, who was dead now, uh, was a Northern Ireland Protestant minister. He was militantly anti-Catholic. Okay. Uh, he, he was not, he was convinced that if you'd ever set foot in a Roman Catholic church for any reason, your soul might be irreparably lost 
the idea that he wanted to receive communion at our church and wanted, I mean, now you say a lot of what you want to say about the guy and you could say plenty about Ian Paisley, but you can't deny the fact the guy had his convictions and you weren't going to trick him into becoming a, a Catholic. Uh, which is just such a stupid thing to even, if you, if you analyze it, if you think about it for half a second, it doesn't make sense. But when you're an academic and an intellectual and a quote unquote expert, you get in a room with other experts and the echo chamber thing starts happening and you convince yourselves that not only could this be true, it's a, it's a natural fact. Well, here's this thing. If that's true, then we might as well start snatching people up and baptizing them. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, we can we can trick Protestants into becoming Catholic, but we can't evangelize to them because that's over the top. Oh, you know, it, come on, pick a lane here. Pick a lane here. Um, Sacrosanctum Concilium is not a document in which they didn't even. I I don't think they even knew they were going to write a new mass. What they say in the document is the ma- the rite of mass is to be revised, and then they go on to talk about it being a restoration, things that. Uh, over time, we're lost to what they call accidents of history. Now, they never really tell us what accidents of history they're talking about. And they don't list any examples. But the idea here is, let's let these liturgical experts who are experts in this science of liturgical history go back and look at some things that were that made their way out of the liturgy and see if there's anything in there worth restoring. And how that came to be, let's write, let's throw out everything that's pre-1965 and write a new mass. Well, that's a story for another time. <laughs> well, I, I want to bring up two instances in this in this uh, uh, document, and and I don't mean to keep harping on the the Latin language. I guess it just resonates with me so much at this uh, current language. time because you, you after the motu proprio, especially you kept you kept hearing people say, no, 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 no. I like the one in the vernacular. You you guys can do it in Latin if that's your thing, but I need my mass in the vernacular. So, you know, this idea that Vatican II, the post-conciliar church, is the vernacular mass isn't mm-hmm. true. So I, I want to bring up two instances. What did I, the text I sent you today, I asked you, I said, hey, do you think that the, pre, the, 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 the priests that are not part of traditional orders, like the FSSP and Institute of Christ the King, do you think they pray the divine office, or what do they call it now, the liturgy of the hours, in, mm-hmm. in Latin? And what was your answer? To my knowledge, they never did print a Latin version of the new breviary. Okay. So, when I read in Article 101 of Psycho Sanctum Concilium, it says, In accordance with the century-old tradition of the Latin rite, the Latin language is to be retained by clerics in the divine office. But in individual cases, the ordinary has the power of granting the use of a vernacular translation to those clerics for whom the use of Latin constitutes a grave obstacle to their praying the office properly. The vernacular version, however, must be one that is drawn up according to the provision of Article 36. Okay, so... To my knowledge, I don't know of any priest that necessarily pray the divine office in Latin. So that's why I asked you that question. And then you said, well, you don't know of one's printed in English, right? And I know it says... Go out and try to find one. I dare you. Well, I know it says here, and I know a lot of the divine office is done in private, okay? So so we're not... I guess in some cases, we're not completely certain but if you can't even get it in latin then 
that might be your answer right there. But it says in here that the the only way they can do it in the vernacular, and it has to be approved, is if the Latin constitutes a grave obstacle to their their office properly. Again, is grave obstacle? Can that be? What does that mean? Can that be kind of ambiguous and vague? Yes, in some senses, but. Is grave, oh, I don't speak Latin or I don't know how to uh, pronounce Latin properly. Is that grave obstacle? In my humble opinion, that is not a grave obstacle because you can learn those things. If you have a, Maybe if you had some learning disability that you couldn't, okay, that's one thing. But most of us are able to learn Latin and how to pray in Latin. You know, I'm not the, I, I am by far the smartest person in, in any room that I'm in. And I have slowly learned Latin over the past few years, right? Um, well, yeah. I, and I think, I mean, if, if what we're saying is that human beings now are so much more advanced than they used to be, then how come in the past they could do this and today we can't? Uh, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a, those two things don't make sense when you put them together. It can be one or the other, but it can't be both. No, it's trying to put a, a square in a, in a round hole. I mean, okay, so... If I could touch on the Latin thing for a while, because I was talking about this with my wife, and she she was legitimately asking the question, why Latin? Why not 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 why is the mass in Latin? Because we've covered that. It's the Roman Rite, and it adopted the language of ancient Rome, and that became the language of the Catholic Church. But like, she was asking, like, why do you like Latin? And I like Latin because I just like the way sacred languages sound. I I, I mean, it, and it's not particularly just to Latin. Um, when I hear people read the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, I think to myself, those are the same words our Lord read when he would read the Torah in the synagogue. And it's not just a translation of the words. He made those sounds. He said, he said to himself, you know, Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melaka Holam. He would say those, those very words. Very well so done. When, Oh, thank you, man. Uh, by, so when, by by my knowledge, that was perfect pronunciation. Well, I I, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so when when you're listening to somebody read the Torah in Hebrew, okay. Now it's true you don't want to participate in another religion's ceremonies because you you're not a member of that religion and you don't want to endorse other religions that you think are not the truth. That's not what I'm saying here, but I'm just saying if you listen to people read or, or sing the Torah in Hebrew, you're listening to the sounds that our Lord made. Um, to me, Latin harkens back to the giant, the intellectual and, and saintly giants of the church, Augustine, right? I don't think Augustine even spoke Greek. I think Augustine was entirely Latinized. Uh, and when we pray the, the, what's the, uh, the, the Sursum Corda prayer that, that, that's right up, that's right in front of the preface, you know, uh, oh, yeah. uh, ad dominum sagamus domino del nostro. That, that prayer is very old. It's one of the, they, they've got evidence of that prayer being in the Latin, in the Roman rite of the church all the way back to the first century. And when you hear that prayer and you say that prayer, you are listening to the very, not just the words, but you're listening to the sounds that Augustine prayed, that Jerome prayed. These, I mean, this is a kind of a big deal. And, and I think Vatican II sensed that. They, they sensed that having the Latin language as was a gift 
that the Catholic Church had given us. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a cross to bear. It was a gift. And I think it serves a very practical purpose too, in the sense of it being a you know what's called a dead language is as languages are active meanings of words change just think of all the meanings sure. of the words that have changed since we've been kids sure um so it also serves a very practical purpose as well um and, 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 and sorry and go ahead so oh no i was just going to say sacrosanctum concilium number 54 where it says uh, that a suitable place can be allotted to the vernacular in masses which are celebrated with people. The very next paragraph said, Nevertheless, care must be taken to ensure that the faithful may also be able to say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the mass which pertain to them. And I'm going to tell you what, the only place you're finding that is at traditional Latin mass parishes. You know, we when... deny Vatican II. It, that's absurd. I can only think of... One time off the top of my head, you know, before I discovered the traditional Latin Mass um, during my conversion, because I've told you before, my conversion, like many people, was through a Novus Ordo parish. Um, again, I, I said in a previous podcast, no issues, no problems for the most part. Everything was good. But the only time I ever remember using Latin was... On one of the songs that they would sing during Mass, they would say, Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, who takes away the mm -hmm. sins of the world. Right. And I, I, to this day, I can still remember hearing the Agnus Dei. And it's just, this is just a, maybe just a personal thing. I don't know. But I remember thinking, oh, man, that is so cool. You know, um, this is, you know, they're using Latin because this is the heritage of the church. Right. And, and I... I, I tend to agree in some of the instances of of the possibly using the mother tongue in certain instances, right? Like it talks about here when it talks about the sacraments and sacramentals in this document, it says in uh, Article 62, with the passage of time, however, there have crept into the rites of the sacraments and sacramentals certain features which have rendered their nature and purpose far from clear to the people of today. Hence, some changes have become necessary, etc., etc. And then Article 63, because of the use of the mother tongue and the administration of the sacraments and sacramentals can often be of considerable help to the people, this use is to be extended according to the following norms. And, the, and then it goes on. So, in the sacraments and sacramentals, you know, e even today people have a a misunderstanding even in the vernacular have a misunderstanding of what sacramentals are for like the brown scapular it's not a good luck charm you don't wear it, you got a free ticket to heaven right you know there that there are things that you have to do in a way you have to live in order for those promises right and and by wearing it it serves as a physical reminder of those promises you have made right of your mm -hmm. uh, so I can see how maybe in administering some of the sacraments or sacramentals, especially to, to converts, the mother tongue of, of that person, the, the vernacular, could be of great assistance. Mm -hmm. But they never meant for you just to completely get rid of it, um, of the Latin. So, again, I, I read that and I'm like, well, that makes sense. It's not saying get away, with the, uh, uh, get away from your heritage. It's saying, hey... If, if we need help in converting and bringing people to a proper understanding of the church and the, the, uh, the mother tongue can help them, let's use it, but not, not to an exclusive, exclusive visity, if I said well, that right. 
the, the point of the document and the point of the paragraph you just read is what's most important to us here is this idea of active participation. We want people to feel like the liturgy is a treasure that they have and is, it is a, something that is otherworldly that they can experience in their own lives. And if some parts of the vernac, if some parts need to be changed to the vernacular within the bounds of good taste and ecclesiastical law, we would like to free up the sacred congregation to rights to do that because what's most important is that people are, are not just going to mass, but that they're excited about it. That the salvation of souls. Now, is, you now know? in that context, do you think if you would have gone to these council fathers and said, hey, uh, in 50 years, a sizable number of young people in the Catholic Church are going to find something incredibly engaging in the mass, in the, in the preconciliar reforms, they're going to be and they're going to engage with the liturgy and like they've never done before in their lives. Do you think that so the fathers of Sacrosanctum Concilium, the guys who are willing to change the way the Catholic Church has done things for 2,000 years so they can get people excited about the liturgy would have said, no, those people need to be shut down. <laughs> no, I mean, no. We get back to this thing of active participation. Here's the problem with, and now some people say, well, why don't you actively participate in your Novus Ordo parish? Like Pope Francis said to the bishops, anything they can get from the, uh, the old form, they can get in the new form. You know, here's the problem. They don't let us actively participate. We all came from Novus Ordo parishes. We tried to introduce, hey, let's let's start a scola. Hey, uh, how about some or two or three of the prayers be in Latin? Why don't we do some Gregorian chants once in a while? I know of someone who and you'd be called names. You'd be told to sit down and shut up. And while you're sitting down and shutting up, we'd like it very much if you'd actively participate, please. Hey, by the way, I, I like to start a scola. <laughs> no. Um, well, my friend over here, he was wanting to do a guitar. I, I, Mass, I know you were. Oh, that sounds perfect. Yeah. The, the fact know? is, there was no room made for us. We went to the traditional Latin Mass primarily because we weren't going to get a fight with them every time we wanted to do something that introduced some semblance of reverence and holiness into what we were doing. Okay. That's why we went there. If you want to know why, if you want to write a motu proprio to somebody who is responsible for the 50-year decline in the Catholic Church, it's a self-addressed stamped envelope, bud. Okay, <laughs> you guys are the ones who are responsible for that. I don't, I, I haven't been alive for 50 years. You can't blame me. And here's the deal. For all of this, we're in charge, we're in charge. You're all in charge until everything goes wrong. And then, well, don't look at me. It wasn't my fault. Well, you know, and there's the, the, there's times uh, in people within the, the traditional communities that, myself included, I, I, I'll put myself up there. Times, have we, have we necessarily thought or acted the right ways out of frustration and anger? No. Um, but, but we're constantly also many times felt, well, I'm sorry, the Catholic church is full of sinners. It's, that's yeah. the only kind of people who <laughs> should go to a Catholic church well, because it's the only kind of people who need salvation. That's the real crux of Traditionis Custodes. He, he writes that he wants to funnel us back into our Novus Ordo parishes, but you and I both know that's total crap. They don't want us back over there. And that was the question I asked in the last episode is, what are you guys going to do if all these millions of Catholics who follow this traditional Latin mass and you just banned it, what are you going to do if they leave? Have you thought about that? 
Because the idea, once again, people are not people. They're just sticks of furniture. So they'll go wherever I tell them to. You've lost all moral legitimacy in the last 20 years. No one trusts you, your excellency, your eminence, your holiness. So if you want to get real, you better start looking at the reality on the ground. And if, and if these people just stop going to mass because they don't find anything in the Catholic Church they're looking for, and you're responsible for that, that's going to be an awkward conversation at the end of time. I'm glad you're having it and not me. Because I'm not looking forward to the conversation I'm going to have to have with Jesus at the end of time. But let me tell you something. I sure am glad that ain't going to be one of the things. <laughs> I went off on a tangent on that one. Sorry about that. Oh, no, you're good. I think. Uh... Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry, I'm kind of I'm kind of scared to say something. I don't want you going off on me. Go, go. <laughs> I know everything to add on that. Um, no, no, we're good. Um, <laughs> no, but I but like I said, I mean, you're you're the one that kind of got me into into uh, looking into this document, Psycho Sanctum Concilium, some more and and everything. I'd been meaning to, but to be honest, part of it, I had a lot of other things I was wanting to read and look into and. And I was victim of the well. I already know the gist of it. Everybody, because because the gist of what everybody thinks Vatican II says is pretty universal, actually, regardless of what side of the fence you're on. So you're like, well, well so you just assume out of out of nature. Well, both people, you know, both sides can't necessarily be wrong. They're both agreeing on it. Well, that's not true. Well, I mean, like I, like I was talking about earlier, I always approached Sacrosanctum Concilium with a lot of trepidation. It was the only, I never really, you know, I'm not an expert theologian. So there's theologians out there who say, oh, Lumen Gentium has heresies in it. And I think, first of all, I don't see how that's possible, but I, I can't, I can't speak on that, that, that level of discourse about theology where I can now question the theology of the Catholic church. But I didn't. My problem with Sacrosanctum Concilium was not that I thought it was theologically flawed or bad or anything. I did not understand, didn't make any sense to me. How you call the Mass an accident of history. What, what, what does that mean? And if there is a, a, a legitimate history of liturgical reform in the Roman Rite, then aren't those accidents of history part of that? And isn't, isn't eliminating or reintroducing those things, isn't that a denial? of liturgical reform and if it's not why not i had all kinds of questions but the modern catholic church isn't taking questions you see you'll just believe it because i've told you to believe it and it is whatever i say it is and i'm the bishop and i don't owe you any explanations and i'm in charge and I, you know and and that's all you get well i stumble across this this youtube talk this amazing priest from south carolina who finally answers the questions and sure enough i was reading it wrong and I did have misunderstandings. And once the questions were answered, I was back on board. I just wonder why we can't try that. Why, why, is the, why is the only pedagogy here, you'll do what I say or I'm going to kick you out? Why is the pedagogy not, okay, well, tell me what your concerns are with Sacrosanctum Concilium. Okay, well, here's what you need to understand in its context and things like that. I, I know that they think we're all stupid. Guys, your excellency, your eminence, your holiness, we're not that stupid. We can understand some things. 
I know you think we're morons, but I don't think that we are, are we? I mean, and even if we don't understand, I mean, we should at least be worth the effort to say, Absolutely. hey, let me help you understand so that we can all be in, in unity. And that's, that's one of the reasons I've, I came to that conclusion last week that I'm, I'm not going to be obedient to Traditionis Custodis. I can't. In good conscience, I can't do it. And because it's a denial of, it, it is in and of itself a denial of the Second Vatican Council's true, um, true liturgical reform, its ideas about active participation, its ideas about lay people who were excited about the liturgy. That's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. They, don't, they talk a lot of crap about, oh, we want you to be excited about the Novus Ordo, but not really. Because if you express any interest in it, you're labeled as a conservative extremist right-wing nut job, and they kick you out. So there is no real active participation going on over there. Did you I hear? Think, did, did, did I send you did send you that either tweet or meme or whatever where somebody made the comment? They where Pope Francis was talking about not having to, we shouldn't be following rigid rules and stuff. And the person's like, "Great, got the message. Won't won't uh, follow tradition on its custodians. <laughs> won't follow these rigid rules." That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. I like the, listen, I like the sound effects, okay? No, you're doing great on them. Uh, well, I kind of, it's kind of, as you say it, I'm like, ooh, ooh, that would be good for a laugh track. Let's put the laugh track in there. Uh, so I got to get better at that. I got to, I got to be Johnny on the spot with the, uh, with the sound effects, but anywho, um, did you did you happen to see that response that the uh, basically all the uh, I, I don't know if it's the right term but the ecclesia no. day communities sent to yeah uh, and that was a great time for us to talk about that I so did you, see you, that yeah I I will admit I haven't read it in whole but I have read parts of it well fill us in on sort of the background of all that so this is this is some stuff that's happened post traditionis custodes but more like in the wake of Traditionis Custodes. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to pull it up here if I can get it. Um, yeah, here that, it is. The, the, the superiors of the traditional Latin mass groups and religious communities have been summoned to Rome for something. Yeah. So told what? Which is ominous, but... Yeah. Well, so in their response in the, in the very beginning, and this kind of goes to this idea that if he would have spoken to these communities, this, he wouldn't necessarily, unless he just wanted to, think what he thinks. They, they say, we do not see ourselves as the quote-unquote true church in any way. On the contrary, we see in the Catholic Church our mother in whom we find salvation and faith. We are loyally subject to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Pontiff and that of the diocesan bishops, as demonstrated by the good relations in the diocese. Yeah. So, so, so right away, right off, hey, we don't believe that. And if, if there happen to be the few outliers in our communities that do, that are not, uh, you know, that, that attend, we, we do not promote that idea. And it, we said in the very first episode, we have never heard that idea promoted that we are better Catholics or that, uh, you know, Pope Francis is our, not our Holy Father. We have, and we should just, uh, disrespect and disregard him and the the hierarchy. We have never, never, anywhere from the pulpit, from uh, meetings we've had with Father and 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 whatnot. But we have never, I've never had the impression that hey, we're trying to be a different church than the true Catholic Church. 
the part the part about their response that really broke my heart was when they were saying we feel suspected we feel like you don't we just we feel like you don't like us anymore is do you not like us for some reason and if it's something we did that caused this then we'll we'll reform we'll do whatever we need to do well yeah and it it says right here and then that's what I was about to say they say have any mistakes been made we are ready as every christian is to ask forgiveness of some excess of language or mistrust of authority may have crept into any of our members. We are ready to convert if party spirit or pride has polluted our hearts. You know, Jason, you're a father. And how, how would you feel if, for some reason, one of your children came to you and said, Dad, do you hate me? Is there something that I've done that's made you hate me? I mean, that would, that would break my heart. Yeah, well, I, would, that, I would be like, what have I done to make you think that? Yeah, or or even if we, even if you've had to give your kid a correction or something over something. Let's say they, I don't know, they, they did something wrong and they're being punished for something. If they came away from that with the idea that you hate them, man, then then you're going to start feeling like, okay, I, 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 there's something in this correction I did that isn't right, or I didn't do this the right way or something like that. I, I just, I read that. And I thought it is it is a quirky thing to wonder why nobody joins the Catholic priesthood and then make your priests beg you for their lives in public. I mean, you know, that kind of sorry, sorry. We were talking about it earlier and that just reminded me of some. And that is probably one reason why liturgical abuses are able to be so persistent, it seems like today, and that. All these dioceses, at least I know in our diocese, I believe we are struggling for priests. And every and and well, every diocese in the world, you can look at the outcome measures for yourself, and you can see that for some reason in 1960, for for some reason the decline starts in 1970. Now they claim that you can't blame that on the mass. Okay, well, fine. Uh, well, there's all kinds of social reasons for the reason that happened. Okay, fair enough. But you guys are the ones who go around calling Vatican II the most monumental thing that ever happened in the history of anywhere ever. But then when you look at the fruits of it, now all of a sudden, well, you can't blame Vatican II for that. It wasn't that influential. It didn't. You can't. <laughs> well, we, and now with our with our knowledge and what we just talked about, we even have to be careful in saying it was because of Vatican II. It, because you, I don't believe it was. It's you yeah. guys. It's, yep. it's not Vatican II that we don't believe in. It's you, quite. I mean, not you, Jason. <laughs> I do believe in you, Jason. Um, <laughs> what a crowd. I'm talking. I'm, talk I'm talking to the these these bishops out there who, you know, guys. I I, don't, I just don't know any other way to tell you that the the cool kids table that you're so desperate to sit at. Uh, <laughs> the cool kids. Sorry, I, I love. I love that term. I, have, I don't think I've ever heard that. If I had, I it hadn't, hit, it hadn't registered with me. <laughs> well, you, you know, Your Excellency, Your Eminence, you should know the cool kids kind of hate you, and they laugh at you when you're not around. The idea that you are ever going to get them to think that you're cool, I'm sorry to tell you this, you can come out with all the pro-gay marriage stuff you want. Anderson Cooper is never going to invite you to his rooftop party. It's never going to happen. Pete's so butter leg or Buddha leg is not going to, even though I think he says he's Catholic, he is not going to all of a sudden 
change his beliefs that are contrary to the church. Uh, Barack Obama is not going to invite you to Martha's Vineyard. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. So you might as well start dealing with reality. The reality that, uh, that lets you know that most of the people in the world don't even see why you're necessary anymore. Uh, that ought to give you some pause. And like I said in the last podcast, uh, there's good bishops out there. There's a lot more, I think, than we think there are. I, I think because of the, the way the post-Vatican II church has been set up, it's difficult for them to have a voice. But then there's a lot of bishops out there that don't care about doing the godly thing or the or the right thing or the, the fatherly thing. They only care about self-interest and power. Okay, fine. Let's, let's approach it from that direction then. You understand that the world doesn't think you're necessary anymore, right? Uh, they don't know. They don't. In fact, they think you're all crooked, that you're no, the... all pedophiles, that you're all, yeah. they, they think you, whether you're like that or not, that's what they think. So this idea that they're ever going to let you come sit at the cool kids table, if you just do all the weird pranks that they make you do, it's no, they're, they're laughing at you. The moment you put that collar on, these people have already have a dislike with you unless they can use you for a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And listen to real. <laughs> the, l listen to this, and, and this is this is really sad. What they go, what they also say in this. There's two two more things that I want to read in this. Uh, we'll read one. I'll see what you think, and then we'll go to the other. But okay. it says here, we beg for a humane, personal, trusting dialogue, far from ideologies or coldness of administrative decrees. We would like to be able to meet a person who will be for us the face of the motherhood of the church. So, oh, and it goes on. We would like to be able to tell him about the suffering, the tragedies, the sadness of so many lay faithful around the world, but, all, but also of priests, men and women, religious, who gave their lives trusting on the word of Popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI. So they are basically, in this paragraph, making... The statement, we've, we feel like we have not been treated well. We've, we've just been trashed, and we haven't even had dialogue. You're not even, you're not even giving us the respect of, of, of coming to us and saying, hey. And the fact that they said they want to meet with a person who can be the face of the motherhood of the church tells you right there, nobody talked to them. I wonder if it's occurred. I wonder if it's occurred to the Holy Father. What happens if you destroy just one vocation from this? Now, that may not seem like a big deal. One less priest. The world needs plenty of bartenders. But here's the problem: priesthood vocation means this isn't just your job. This is the purpose of your whole life, and now you don't get to fulfill it because of reasons. Man, let me tell you something. Uh, you talk about awkward conversations to have with Jesus at the end of time. Don't mess with his priesthood, man. Do not do it. And uh, I just, I don't know what this, what this meeting coming up is going to do. There's a lot of rumor because that's all we get. We're left to come up with the rumors ourselves. If you don't like the fact that we are always engaging in rumor, you could come out and tell us a definitive fact once in a while, but they don't want to do that. Fine. Will engage in rumor. There's rumors that they're going to close down the FSSP centers. The, the scary thing is, it seems like lately rumors are becoming reality, and they all become reality anyway. Yeah, absolutely. They're, so, 
No, go I'm ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I say, the rumor is that they're going to close down the FSSP seminaries and begin the dis- dissolving these communities. Well, that's actually a good segue into into this. I, I lied. I said there was two. There's actually going to be three that I that I want to read, and we'll pretty much have read the whole document, but or letter. It says in this. It is in this way, trusting the word of the Supreme Pontiff, talking about JP2 and Benedict XVI, they gave their lives to Christ to serve the church. These priests and men and women religious serve the church with dedication and abnegation. Can we deprive them today of what they are committed to? Can we deprive them of what the church had promised them through the mouth of the popes? And not like a million years ago, 14 years ago. You, yeah, you, you, a, a guy has barely had time to get through the seminary before you've told him, yeah, by the way, uh, we've decided we don't need people like you anymore. Wow. Yeah, you thanks, think, but you no think, thanks. You think you'd want to be very careful at least with something like that, but no. And I understand that there's people out there on Twitter uh, that, you know, quite frankly, don't understand what we're up in arm about. What we're up in arms about. Um, I, I get it. I don't expect you to understand. You need to. You need to understand one thing, and that is the Catholic Church does not treat you the way it treats us. The Catholic Church doesn't treat anybody the way it treats us. So, quite frankly, it's not bizarre to me that you wouldn't understand. You've never been treated like this before. We've been treated like this for fifty years. Okay, Cardinal McCarrick uh, is is a is a serial sex abuser, and it takes. 40 years for that case to eventually reach its way to the Vatican. And then he's never tried for it by, by the Pope as is, as is under canon law. He's just sort of dismissed from the clerical state and he just sort of go away with us, man, you consecrate four bishops and your excommunication is already written and it's coming overnight delivery. You've never seen the wheels of ecclesiastical justice move this fast before. So I get it. I understand that you don't understand us. I don't expect you to. But you could maybe imagine what it's like to live in our shoes for maybe just half a second. I don't know. Put, putting myself in these seminarians and these priests' shoes um, for a minute on that line, you know, we, we should always, of course, pray for our priests. Um, of course. Absolutely. But, but I feel like especially right now we need to pray for the seminarians and the priests in these traditional, um, uh, what's the word, traditional groups, I guess. Because think about this, you have dedicated your life to Christ and the church, and you you are spending countless hours, you know, learning everything you need to do to be a priest. You or you've been a priest for ten years, and the church is saying, "We don't like you. We don't want you. No thanks." That if I'm in those shoes, I might be questioning, "Man, do I do I even want to?" Is this is this the church? You know, is this is this where I need to be? You know, I mean, I can see through you know through my eyes, I can see how that could be really damaging to somebody's faith. These men, these men give up a lot to become a priest. Becoming a priest, I know that people out there think, well, you know, people become priests for the prestige and everything. Well, I hate to tell you that maybe that was true uh, a thousand years ago, but modern day society doesn't give you any prestige as a priest. You give up. You're in the seminary for, like I said, seven to 14 years, depending on what seminary and what level of formation you go through. And in that time, marriable women will meet someone else. They will start families and you, and you are, you know, you come out the other end of it 
because they decided that the Pope woke up this morning and decided he didn't like you anymore, and now you're just out. Go be a layperson again and be alone because anybody who was marryable got married already. And uh, these guys give up a lot, and I think it's just wrong to throw them away like that. Well, it's it's one thing when people outside the church or even like us bonehead lay people are trashing a priest, but it's another when it comes from their superiors and the and the what bishop. is the yeah. yeah the the bishop of yeah. Rome, the supreme pontiff. Um, you remember in episode one, you mentioned how Pope Francis seems to be contradictory in the things he writes and some of his other uh, encyclicals or letters or whatever the proper term is. Right. And then his motu proprio tradition on his casotes, right? Right. Well, they actually quote from Amoris Laetitia I, I in, saw that. in this letter. So Pope Francis, uh, quote, encourages the church's pastors to listen to them with sensitivity and serenity with a sincere desire to understand their plight and their point of view in order to help them live better lives and to recognize their proper place in the church, end quote, from uh, Amoris Laetitia 3.12. We are eager to entrust the tragedies we are living to a father's heart. We need listening and goodwill, not condemnation without prop or without prop. Let me read that again. That's a good sentence. We need listening and goodwill, not condemnation without prior dialogue. The harsh judgment creates a feeling of injustice and produces resentment. Patience softens hearts. We need time. And, you know, to be honest, I hadn't even read where uh, that part of it where the harsh judgment creates a feeling of injustice and produces resentment. But I feel like that's what I was trying to get across, you know, when I was putting myself in a, Absolutely. In a seminarian or priest uh, in these traditional orders. Uh, shoes. No, absolutely. I, I, I read that letter and I, I mean, I was so moved and so heartbroken at the same time to know that there are priests who have not taken the easy way out, who have not just, uh, they don't get on Twitter and promote things that are contrary to Catholic belief so they can get a bunch of likes and they can get invited to speak at Harvard university and they can get these are these are these are guys who have rejected the idea that they'll ever sit at the cool kids table, and they're okay with that. And they take a lot of crap for it. If I understand uh, right, the FSSP isn't even allowed on social media, right? The priest. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't. Well, know I, I, I thought I've heard that before because I don't see them. I can't say the, that I've ever seen one on social media. If that's true, I can see the wisdom in in, yeah, in I, their I, role. Well, I think you know it's. I, I take, for example, Father Van, Father Charles Van Fleet, who is our uh, pastor over at Regina Chaley Catholic Church. He's a member this. of the fraternity. Sorry, sorry. I don't mean I know I interrupted you a couple of times. So the, the, just let me say this about Father Van Fleet. And I've told, I've told people about this before. Out of all the priests I have met in my life, from my experience and my um, time with Father Van Fleet, I, f I honestly feel like that man's a living saint. Because he his pastoral knowledge and, and care is great. He's constantly working for the improvement of the the con or the um, the parish. And I'm not talking about just through fundraising. He's out there, hands, hammer, feet, doing the grunt work. He built the altar. He yeah. built the altar by hand. He's like he's built half the church. I mean, like the Saint Michael shrine. You know, right? He he did that. That man is not idle. 
and and even with all the work he has going on, I've always seen him in my personal experience and, and with others takes the time to meet with people and any advice I've ever had from him, uh, either face to face or in the confessional and even Father Rock in the confessional has always been some of the best advice I've ever had. I mean, I think what I was going to say about Father Van Fleet is you talked about how hardworking he is. This is a guy who it's really difficult to describe uh, for those of you who, who do not know the father we're talking about. But he is either in his cassock or he's in a pair of coveralls yep. uh, for, for working outside. And you should know we live in Houston, Texas, where from August all the way through September, it's only like 10,000 degrees outside uh, for most of the day. And I've never heard him complain. I have never heard him uh, get, uh, and I'm not going to say that it doesn't happen. I'm not going to say that he's, he never gets short with people after working like that. I, I don't know. Uh, I can't speak to every single level of his life, but I can tell you I've spent a lot of time around him and I've never seen it happen. One time, oh, you'll love this story. Uh, This is my most embarrassing story about Father Van Fleet. I'm ready. my wife and I brought these uh, these concrete pavers over to the parish for something. I don't remember what it was for. Um, and we got there, and Father was like, "Yeah, just put them in the in the the not wheelbarrow, the uh, the earth mover that we have over here. Just put them in the little uh, shovel thing there on the earth mover. I don't know. You can tell you can tell I'm very construction oriented. I know what the technical <laughs> terms for things. Anyway, you talk about the I little start- bobcat they have. Yeah, the thingy that goes with the with the thingamajig <laughs> that you use with the whatchamacallit. Yeah, the so front I start loader, moving, little bobcat. I start, uh, okay, so you got to just show me up, huh? Okay, I see how it is, Jason. It's the only time on this entire podcast I'm going to be I able to do it. <laughs> I start moving the concrete blocks over there. Father is maybe, be, I don't know, he's maybe about 20 feet from where I am. He's sort of walking away. And I mashed my finger in one of those concrete blocks. And all the words came out, all, and they came out at full volume. And there was, there just was in no case anybody back. wants to know, Mark is a very quiet person by nature. So <laughs> when he said full volume, it was probably the a, a mouse would be the only person that could hear him. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you something. Full volume. All the words came out, and I was so mad that I was like, I don't care that there's a priest twenty feet away. I'm not gonna stop screaming these bad words. And he never turned around. He never looked at me cross or anything like that. And, uh, of course, in confession uh, after that, I, I brought it up and I said, look, I know you heard me. And I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> I'm confessing it here as, a, as at least a venial sin. And uh, uh, just don't, don't get upset. He's not through with me yet. And <laughs> we, had, we, had, we, had, we shared a little laugh about it. And, uh, and he absolved me from my sins. So to think that Father Van Fleet feels the way that this letter articulates how these priests are feeling, boy, it fills me with a lot of negative emotions, sadness, anger, rage. And if I could say anything, I know that I know that priests don't really listen to this podcast and maybe nor should they, I don't know, but um, <laughs> don't, don't give up guys. We don't, we don't all feel like you're being treated. We, we love you guys. And uh, keep the faith because it feels like you're alone right now. You are not alone. Your, your, your lay faithful are right there with you. We are all the Catholic Church. 
as 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 the Second Vatican II says we are. Thank you. Yes, I I, I I get what you're saying there because it's like when somebody talks bad about your your say your child or your family member, and you know you you're like they're not like that. That's kind of yeah. how we feel with our priests. We're like. In our experience, and, and we've been through, uh, my time there, I've been through quite a few priests. Father Van Fleet, I mean, you already know how I feel about him. Father Codet, loved Father Codet when he was here. Oh, yeah. Father Father Mullane, the, the little bit, the experience I had with him, he was good. I, you know, uh, I didn't have any complaints about him. I mean, like I said, I, I didn't interact with him much because of COVID and all that that hit. But then we had Father right. Rock, and he's been here for a while. Father Rock is great. He's a, in my opinion, he's a great confessor in the confessional. Yeah, I, and I love Father Rock. It, it's it's like, uh, and you know, and he took the time with the children because my son, my oldest son, had first communion this past year, and you know, Father Rock was uh, leading the class and and also uh, took time with the kids, you know, for their first confession to do like a dry run just so they felt comfortable in what they needed to do and act and say and all that. And it's like, <laughs> these priests are not the malicious, the divisive priests you are making them out to be. Nor are they rigidly angry, mean-spirited, litigious people who psycho, who analyze every rule to the umpteenth degree like you think they do either. Um, well, good point. If if Father Fleet had been rigid as some of them are trying to be defined as, you would have got a chewing up and down when you dropped that cinder block on you. I got to tell you, in analyzing my behavior, I deserve one. It, it wasn't <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't one of those things where you hit your, your, your hand with a hammer or something and it just sort of comes out. It started out as that, but then I got really mad that I was behaving that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just went off and I was, I was, I was angry that it had happened because I was doing something for the church and I knew I shouldn't have been, I mean, it was just a really negative attitude I had and a really bad performance it, on my but part. But it just goes to speak to Father Van Fleet grace of, you know, his grace in the pastoral um, dealings with us. And to think that he feels unappreciated to that degree, I... You know, I, my wife and I, my wife basically supported me while I was going through law school, which was a very difficult time for me. As we've illustrated many times on this podcast, my IQ does not break the bank and I wanted to be a lawyer. So I had to work. Day, really one day you'll be the new Texas hammer. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, so I had to work really hard in law school. It, 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 does, it was not something that came easy to me. Studying for the bar, I had I had to take the bar several times before I eventually passed, and each one of those defeats was like a small death because they don't offer the bar all the time. They only offer it twice a year, so that would be a whole year I'd have to go without working. And my wife basically carried us. And, you know, it's it's incredibly important to me to know that she appreci that I appreciate that. It's that she feels appreciated, right? And I just don't understand how a bishop or a pope or a cardinal would not, would, I mean, would not at least include a line in this motu proprio saying, I don't want you to think that I think you're all terrible people. I appreciate greatly what you do. And if this is, if this comes off as I don't appreciate you, I really don't want it to sound that, that. there was nothing like that in there. Well, if if I may, I, I I didn't intend to do it, and I know we we've, we've been on this one for a while, but I th think it's a good time to bring up 
what what I did uh, or what I read to you before we got on the podcast. Mm. I think this is the other book you showed oh, me. Oh yeah, with with uh, with Boogie. That's my yeah. that's, that's my new nickname for Anabali Bugnini. Anabali Bugnini. That's that's the name of being to our Italian listeners. Um, Jason's racism there was his uh, exclusive property. We're no longer the trad men. Uh, so the... I, I don't know that that was racism, but that was um, <laughs> your your linguistic linguisticism, however you would say it. There you go. There you go. Anyway, uh, Annabelle Bunini, Reformer of the Liturgy by Yves Chiron, which I think mm-hmm. uh, I think he may be French. I don't know, but anyway, I think I, I think I read somewhere he was. Or French, might be, but... He might be Belgian. I don't remember. But anyway, so when I read this, and it maybe it's just me reading into it, I, I don't know, but it feels like when I read this, I was like, this feels exactly the same way that the survey Pope Francis sent out, the way uh, that Bunini sent out a, a survey or an opinion poll, I guess I should say. So are, um, we about, are we about to go back in time? Yes, you want to use your... Let's go back in time to a simpler time. In a land far, far away in the early spring of 1948, Okay. Father Bunini launched a survey, an extensive poll. He sent it out to 100 ecclesiastics Ecclesiastics, there we go, in various countries and continents. The idea, said Father Bunini, uh, was to have a fairly precise idea of the clergy's actual aspirations. As usual in any survey of this type, the addresses were carefully selected. And then it went on to say uh, those who were questioned were university professors, seminary instructors, uh, charity directors, religious and very orders, so on and so forth. But then it goes on to say, no bishop had been polled. Going on to the next page. The responses came in from diverse countries and varied in length. Roughly, uh, they, they polled 100 people and 40 were uh, sent in a response. So 40%. Easy math. Um, there you go. <laughs> some simply stuck to the questionnaire that had been sent. Others developed veritable dissertations. Bunini would later say, uh, Bunini would later say, the responses were not published unabridged. They were summarized with quotations, and Bunini added his own comments, as we shall see later in the book. And then it goes on to say at the end of this chapter, in truth, this long article talking about the, because, because so the following year, 1949, Father Bunini published the results of the survey. And it was in the form of an article, um, and uh, the title was Per Una Reforma Liturgica Generale, Towards a General Liturgical Reform. In truth, this long article is not a systematic summary of the responses he had received. There are few direct quotations, and the author's names are never cited. There are long comments by Father Bunini, however... Lastly, this article is less of an analysis of the responses received than a personal presentation that relies on the survey's contradictory results. And again, I may have read in maybe reading into that, but when I read that, I was like, this is the same feeling I got from Traditionis Custodes. It's almost like did Pope Print did Pope Francis pull the same playbook from Father Benigni? It's a playbook. That's exactly what I thought when you told me the story. I was like, "Wow, this is this is a tactic that they." I wonder how many other times they've done this to us. I mean, I don't know. Something to think about. Um, 
okay, here's the deal. We're coming up on two hours. We're about to lose our audience if we go in for a third. So yeah. <laughs> I think we ought to wrap it up for t- for now and go- come back into this on the next episode. Um, if you want to write us an email, you want to shoot us a comment, please send us an email to tradmenpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Other than that, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. It helps us out with the algorithms and we'll, you'll, and make sure you click the bell so you can get notifications when a new podcast drops, uh, as it should every Sunday. Um, Jason, parting thoughts? Well, just um, I just wanted to add that if anybody, you know, we, we would love to engage with anybody. We've got a, a slowly growing Twitter account. We've, uh, we'd love to get emails and we'd love to open up a, a segment or a small part of our show to address any emails or or questions we have or even areas uh that we may be wrong we're if we're wrong we're always open to being um shown that we are but but we would love to uh engage with anybody it'd, it'd yeah, add a fun aspect to the show error. yeah i don't want to be an error uh but we're gonna let we're gonna let the truth of the catholic church define what the truth is I will also accept letters saying how handsome I sound, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. over the, over the radio. Um, oh, my how, wife hit me. My wife hit I me am. with that already. She already hit me. Wow, Jason's got a very manly voice, and I was like, "All right, how long has this been going on?" <laughs> <laughs> very manly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, f- sorry. Funny story here. I I was uh. I took Russian at U of H for a couple of years. Well, actually, what I did, I two, did two years in one semester. So that's all we did that whole semester. Really? Wow. And my and my Russian f- professor came up to me. He was uh he was actually from Russia. One, I'm well, there's two professors, but this one came up to me. He goes, he was like very annoyed with me, and he goes, Jason. And of course, he has a Russian accent. So picture this with a Russian accent. Okay. He goes, Jason, you're the only person I've ever met that speaks Russian with a Texas accent. <laughs> And I was like, um, sorry. <laughs> Don't know what you want me to do. Zdrakis vutje, y'all. Zdrakis vutje, y'all. Well, you're from Texas, man. What do you want? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, in, in all truth, I actually took some pride in it. I was like, put my chest out. I was like, there you go. Yeah. yeah, baby. All right. <laughs> I want to. I, I wanted to go back on record that my biblical Hebrew was impeccable. That was... Uh, and trust me, it was not easy to learn even those few phrases. Well, you're probably going to have some rabbis calling you wanting you to do some readings for them, so be ready. Well, I, I doubt that seriously. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, but anyway, we're going to get more into that kind of a stuff stuff as uh, these episodes go on, but we got like 10 seconds till we run up on our time. But Yeah. Um, thanks for joining us, and I uh, hope you get to see you guys back here next week. We're going to talk some more about Vatican II and... Uh, Lots of other cool things. So hope to see from hope to hear from you and we'll see you next time. God bless. God bless guys. Thanks all for joining us.